Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we welcome in Melissa Lohner, the Executive Vice President of Advisor Services at Premier Wealth Management and current NSCP board member. With a background in compliance, but with a focus now on running the business, Melissa is the perfect person to share with us all the best practices when it comes to fees, expenses, and firm compensation, and the types of questions firms should be asking themselves when setting up a billing system. In our headline section, we examine yet another FINRA warning about a new phishing email campaign targeting BD and RIA firms, and discuss some changes in leadership coming at the CFTC. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind, where we explore how a key element of acoustic design could be a critical component of your defense during an SEC examination. But before we get into all of that, a few housekeeping items. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of the wonderful feedback we've received over the past few months. All of your podcast ideas, thoughts, questions, and everything in between have been incredibly well received, and we've already started generating some content in the fall as a result. Second, thank you for your patience as we look to roll out the Reg BI Masterclass to all NSCP members. We at the show have learned a lot over the last few months, including how to provide private, exclusive content on public forums like Apple and Google, and the great news? The Reg BI Masterclass miniseries will be announced in the next couple weeks. We hope you enjoy, or at least you find it entertaining and informative in as much as anybody can really enjoy regulation best interest. Finally, on a more personal note, I want to thank all of our listeners for their continued support of the show, despite the craziness life has been throwing at us. With the end of summer upon us and the start of school picking back up, Sometimes just finding the time can be difficult. Believe me, I, I get it. Turns out taking care of a six-month-old with a three-and-a-half-year-old CEO and two working adults is more difficult than I thought. But we at the show are so appreciative that you've taken the time to build us into your schedule, no matter how crazy it can be. And we plan to reward that with some excellent content for you this fall. Let's light this candle. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, FINRA recently alerted members to another phishing campaign involving the use of fraudulent FINRA domain names, including, but not limited to, at FINRARreporting.org, at FINPRO-FINRAR.org, and at Gateway2-FINRA.org. The email asks the recipient to click a, a link to view request and provide information to, quote, complete that request, noting that late submission may attract penalties. Fender recommends that anyone who clicked on any link or image in the email immediately notify the appropriate individuals in their firm of the incident. FINRA further indicated that none of these domain names are connected to FINRA, obviously, and firms should delete all emails originating from any of these domain names. Finally, they remind firms to verify the legitimacy of any any suspicious email prior to responding, opening any attachments, or clicking on any embedded links, and they've requested that the relevant internet domain registrars suspend services for all three of those domain names. 
If you're looking for additional information, that can be found on FINRA's cybersecurity topic page and the phishing section under the report on cybersecurity practices from 2018. For our next headline, we bid farewell to CFTC Commissioner Brian Quintens, who we actually mentioned on our last podcast, oddly enough. Uh, he recently announced that he will be leaving the office at the end of August 2021. Quintens has been a notable crypto advocate for the duration of his term. And in his statement upon departure, he highlighted his work on cryptocurrency issues. Quote, During my term, the CFTC has overseen the listing of Bitcoin futures contracts, the custody of digital assets within the, the traditional clearing infrastructure, the proliferation of blockchain technology, the creation of cryptographic tokenized commodities, and the rapid expansion of decentralized finance aka DeFi, which purports to realize the ultimate transparency competition innovation reward dynamic of a true free market. Quintens even recently tweeted a question about how to qualify fraud in DeFi, a question that both the CFTC and the SEC appear at odds on of late. Earlier in August, Chairman Gensler said that the agency could regulate decentralized finance projects. More specifically, Gensler stated that DeFi projects that reward participants with valuable tokens or similar incentives could be regulated no matter how decentralized they are in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. According to Gensler, the term DeFi is a bit of a misnomer because these platforms, quote, facilitate something that might be decentralized in some aspects, but highly centralized in other aspects. Quintens later tweeted that he thought hashtag crypto and hashtag DeFi are less like the Wild West and more like a completely new frontier something that SEC Commissioner Peirce also acknowledged when she congratulated Mr. Quintens for all of his hard work on crypto, as well as on tough-to-tackle issues like swaps and security-based swaps and private fund regulation. As we move into the interview session of today's podcast, we are going to be talking about one of the longest-standing challenges probably in the compliance space, or certainly a topic area that the SEC has been focused on for an incredibly long time and certainly isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And that's the issue of fees and expenses. Uh, the SEC has issued numerous risk alerts on this particular topic, uh, but in one of the recent ones from 2018, it's talking, it's talking about how the uh, uh, there are frequent issues when it comes to fees and billing uh, on the advisor side. And an advisor that fails to adhere to the terms of the disclosed fees in their investment advisor agreements or in their regulatory disclosures or otherwise engages in inappropriate fee billing and expense practices may violate the Investment Advisors Act. Um, moreover, obviously, advisors are tasked with developing, uh, adopting and, and implementing written policies and procedures designed to prevent these violations. Um, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in an expert on all things compliance, uh, but certainly on this topic today, Miss Melissa Lohner. Melissa is the Executive Vice President of Advisor Services at Premier Wealth Management. Uh, she is responsible for driving the strategy around advisor growth through implementation of common sense compliance and supervision practices. 
She devotes her time assisting advisors and associates in and advisors and associates in navigating the regulatory environment through education, collaboration, and the implementation of forward-thinking solutions. She earned an MBA from American Military University and holds a slew of uh, FINRA series licenses. And she is also uh, a member of the National, so National Society of Compliance Professionals and a board member there as well. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on today's program. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Patrick, for having me. Um, I know excited is sort of an oxymoron when we talk about these <laughs> subjects, but I am excited to be here. Fantastic. No, we're very, very excited to have you. And, you know, I think um, uh, we, we talked a little bit kind of with that front end primer around fees and expenses, but I think the topic of fees and expenses in on one side, it, it feels like a topic that it should be relatively straightforward, right? It's, you know, look, we're all functioning as an investment advisors. We're going to charge uh, a management fee uh, on that front. And, and then, you know, at the end of the month, depending on whether, or I should say at the end of the quarter or beginning of the quarter, depending on whether you go in arrears or, or not, then you're going to be charging a fee. And yet at the same time, it feels like this issue uh, th this issue of, of billing and fees and expenses is one that just won't go away. Right. Like it keeps coming up in, in, in SEC examinations. It keeps coming up in risk alerts that the SEC pushes out in, in your mind. What are some of the biggest challenges with billing in, in the issues around fees and expenses? So, you know, it's interesting that you ask that because you're you're right. It should be straightforward. But I think the complexity of this business is what's caused it not to be so the best thing that I can tell people is processes and disclosures. So as you were asking the question, you talked a little bit about, you know, is it a monthly fee or a quarterly fee? Is it charged in advance? Is it charged in arrears? Is it charged and calculated on a 360 day or a 365 day? Um, is it refunded at what period of time? So there's a lot of what ifs that come into place. And I think that's what gets people hung up. That's a great point. And you mentioned something there that I'm sure is going to come up quite a bit in the conversation today, which is that when you are a financial advisor, when you are working, especially with you know individuals, but really even institutions and, and asset managers as well, a, a big part of that is also client service, right? Like a big part of that is like wanting to be super responsive whenever we're dealing with a client who says, hey, I've got this you know, kind of unique situation, you know, could we do billing this way? Could we include my family members in the household? What about extended family? Oh, okay. Yeah. They, we forgot to include them on the front end. Can we, can we, you know, backdate and go back and, and, and there's all these other things. And again, advisors really want to try to be as accommodating as possible, but I imagine that's probably one of the things that helps get them into trouble. Sure. And um, for a firm, that's almost sometimes scarier, especially if you have more than one advisor, right? So yeah. the more flexibility you have, which you, you want to have for advisors and advisors want to have for their clients, but it, it puts in a larger risk to not have everything that's needed to be done. Yeah. And I know you're going to ask about this later, but it goes to disclosures. It goes back to processes. It goes back to consistency. Um, so the more flexibility you have, the more of all of those things that are needed. Yeah, that's and that's a perfect segue because one of the next things I was going to ask you about really is like, what are 
I, you know, some of those, those uh, best practices, those key ways that an advisor can mitigate these challenges and issues. And, and you mentioned, you know, not wanting to stray too far from a consistent application, right. Or, um, process, you know, and, and I imagine having the proper disclosures up front would, would be another one. If you would, you know, maybe just kind of flush that out a little bit, because I'd love to hear a little more about how those things, you know, process and disclosures can have an advisor help mitigate those challenges. And, and are there any other items that, that would fall into that camp? Sure. So you nailed on disclosures. Disclosures is a big one, right? Because that's the first place that the regulators are going to go. They're going to go to your disclosure and then they're going to match that up to the billing that you've been doing. So, and in addition to that, they're also going to match that up to your uh, supervisory procedures or your compliance manual or your operations procedure to ensure that you're following that consistently. So you want to make sure that all of those match. Got this it. is where it can get really difficult, right? Because you have one advisor that wants to do one thing, one advisor that wants to do another thing, and you need to make sure that all of both of those or all of those are encompassed correctly in all of these different manuals, your procedures, your supervisory procedures, your operational procedures, your disclosures. So one of the best practices that I largely suggest is to have an annual process where you look at how your billing is actually happening and then review all of those documents to ensure that they're actually reflective. As we had talked about a couple of days ago, there's not just the regulators and the clients and the advisors, but there's also all of your internal business partners and everybody's trying to do the right thing. So maybe somebody in accounting finds a more efficient way to do the billing or to implement the billing. They may not think about making sure that in your operational procedures guide or your disclosures, that what you're doing is matching up. So having somebody that can look at all of those is definitely one best practices that I suggest. Yeah, no, that's a really good one. It also, I think it fits into a larger thematic thread that, that uh, has been present in, in other interviews on this podcast, which is that you also probably want to engage some of your key stakeholders and business units at the firm, right? Like have a conversation with those other heads, maybe it's operations and, and, you know, sales and, and other folks like that, just so that everybody, right, can have kind of alignment as far as what the policy is. Yeah. And I would encourage that to keep going. So not just a, a, a initial conversation at the onset of doing something, but a continued conversation to review that to make sure that it's happening. I find that that's often good too, to sit in, put in a, like a sampling process because we all love technology, right? And it makes our jobs efficient, but sometimes it doesn't work quite the way we thought it was going to, or maybe it's been tweaked somewhere down the road that we weren't aware of that's caused a change. And so I know at one of my firms, we put a process in place where every quarter we pulled 25 accounts and walked it through to make sure that the system was still calculating it the way we intended it to work and that those calculations matched up what we disclosed to the client in the investment contracts as well as the ADVs um, and any other disclosure brochures we had. Because it's really funny, you know, I mentioned before, whether it was a 360 day or a 365 day, I had a situation where to create some efficiencies, one of the business units decided to change the calculations from a 360 day to a 365 day, which was great for billing practices. But our disclosure brochure said we calculate and our investment management contract said we calculated things on a 360 day. 
And so it's not like it wasn't a large amount of a difference. I think it only came up to about $40 difference in the grand scheme of things from an annual. But for the SEC, it was more about it was not happening the way we had it disclosed that it was happening. They didn't really care necessarily about the amount, but the fact that we were not doing what we said we were doing. That is such a great point. And I think as we kind of continue to dig in to some of the granular level details and even talk a little bit about examinations uh, a, a little later in the interview, we'll get into this. But this exact question that you're that you're talking about, which is, you know, the w- whether or not the amount of the discrepancy is something that the SEC is really concerned about or matters, or again, if they're more kind of concerned about the process, right? And so you're obviously, and the disclosure, right, that, that matches it, which is such a spot on, I think, you know, framework to, to, to work under. And it actually reminds me of recently on the NSCP compliance forum, there was an issue that was discussed <clears throat> among other compliance officers and, and legal practitioners with, you know, the following question being asked, which was essentially, if any advisor out there was implementing a threshold for refunds, where refunds under a certain amount basically wouldn't get paid out to the client. I think the the working theory or kind of position of the firm that is a, a legitimate one, I think in many instances to take would be, look, you've got a terminated account and the accounts leaving the firm to like do some of the processing and some of the other back office and administrative type functionality, even to like, you know, say, depending on how that client might be getting reimbursed, is is actually more laborious than than simply because it's such a nominal amount. Essentially, it's not going to matter. And there were numerous response. I mean, it, it raised a lot of responses in the compliance forum. Uh, again, I think part of the reason why we, you know we felt like this would be a really good topic for our listeners. But a lot of the discussion was that the SEC will often take a pretty hard line when it comes to as you articulated, right? It's only 40 bucks or whatever else. But when it comes to fees and expenses not being refunded, and especially where you haven't very clearly and articulately indicated that that fees under a certain amount are not going to get refunded, they don't necessarily, uh, it's not something that they're going to be, like the, the amount isn't really going to be the focus. The focus is that you overcharged based on the the disclosures that were in either your brochure documents or your advisory agreements at the time that that client signed up. And so you didn't follow your procedures. And then you've probably got yourself just like the risk we, we read from the risk alert at the top of the podcast, you've probably got yourself a, a 206-47 violation. So I don't know, is that is that, uh, would you say that that's consistent with with your experience as well? Yes and no. So I I have two different scenarios. I've looked at and been a part of this whole um, coming up with a de minimis amount to refund on from many, many years ago. So we had a situation where we had a billing issue. We identified it during an SEC exam. We corrected it. We fixed it. We did not have a de minimis in any of our disclosures at that point in time. And so we had to refund clients, you know, back to I can remember we had some some checks and deposits for like 47 cents. 
So after that, we actually put into our disclosure brochure that if an account was leaving and we had charged in advance, that we would refund prorated amounts unless it was under $25 or under. And the SEC was fine with that for you know, the rest of our exams. They didn't necessarily have an issue with that. It worked fine. We had it disclosed in the investment management contract. We had it disclosed in the disclosure brochure. They didn't question it. We did the analysis at that point in time and showed them you know, that it was a, an administrative cost associated with the setup of the accounts and all of this. And so it didn't make sense. Fast forward a number of years later, we had another issue where we needed to refund clients. It was not a billing issue. It was a, it was a different issue. It was actually a share class issue. So we refunded some clients. They would not let us rely on that $25 de minimis that we had disclosed because in the disclosure brochures and the investment management contract, we disclosed it was for the client leaving and prepaid funds. Wow. So we had the specific disclosure of what it was for. So we did go back to them and argue again that there's, you know, administrative costs involved and we'd like to use that $25 de minimis. They came back and told us, you know, asked us when we had evaluated that $25 when we explained to them when they relayed to us that they thought with um, enhancements in the way accounts work and enhancements in technology that that $25 was likely not applicable anymore. And they asked us to reevaluate the costs associated with that. And so we did end up settling on a $10 de minimis. The interesting thing about that was that anything under $10, we didn't have to refund back to the client, but we did have to refund the total back to the treasury. So they wanted to ensure that we didn't keep it, but they seemed to understand the administrative costs of putting together, you know, checks or deposits into closed accounts, everything that would go into refunding that under $10. That's, that is really, really great feedback. And, and I'm sure is something that a lot of our listeners uh, will, will, you know, benefit from. Um, I, I do find it really interesting because in some of the examinations that uh, I've helped support, just in the last several years, you know, you typically, of course, uh, the the SEC staff in doing their examinations, they absolutely, you know, care about substance, like the the substantive rule or content or uh, uh, kind of the 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 actual thing that you're talking about. But a lot of times, at least again, just in, in my own anecdotal experience, right, they were focused more on like the uh, the internal controls and the process and stuff that was interesting. So I, I do, I mean, I'm sure um, there are a lot of folks that are struggling with this issue on what to do with fees and expenses and coming up with, with thresholds. Um, so I think your point about the fact that because of the advancement of technology, um, uh, to such a degree that probably cuts down on, say, when, you know, some of the administrative burden of like issuing an actual check or doing other stuff like that, where you might be able to execute a wire or even, you know, where you notice that, that uh, uh, you've been overcharging an account through like a, a mock audit or internal compliance testing that you're doing. Maybe you just credit the account back and, and other stuff like that, right? It, it's going to, make that process a lot easier from an administrative perspective. And so advisors should should look to lower that that threshold maybe a, a little bit that um, than they previously had thought. You, you mentioned something though during during that 
that response that I, I did also want to revisit, which was the share class disclosure initiative, because obviously a big a big part of that share class disclosure initiative was surrounding the fees and expenses that were charged and, and whether or not they had been properly disclosed and, and um, other related items. You know, in your experience in in uh, uh, the different uh, roles that you played throughout the the time that the initiative was going on, what what do you think some of the the lessons learned from that initiative were, or what what do you? Here's maybe a better way to frame that. What do you think the SEC wanted the industry to take away from that? You know, I'm probably a little bit bitter on this share class disclosure because I cannot say that my interactions and at the time my firm's interactions with the SEC, uh, the, you know, we were asking for a lot of guidance and what we were getting back um, was not that. And the guidance that they did provide was made no sense when it came down to an applicability or an actual industry. <clears throat> so I really think that they are looking at, even though they wouldn't come out and say it, the lowest cost to the client. And if you didn't have that, or they believed you didn't have that, you needed to have a ton of backup documentation to show your argument of why the lowest share class was not the most appropriate and or why you didn't feel something was the lowest share class. So there, there were a lot of things that got into um, discussion there, you know, taking into account retirement accounts. Um, maybe somebody had a full conversation, but the client really wanted a specific fund and, and you could show the documentation of why they chose that fund. So I think share classes is something that we are not done dealing with and they think it will continue to evolve over the next several years. I think from a best practices standpoint, at the end of the day, right or wrong, you have to be able to show your procedures and your processes and have conviction behind what you're doing. If you don't have that conviction behind what you're doing and why you felt that was the best thing that was for the clients in the industry and relevant, um, you're gonna have a really hard time getting the SEC to, to believe that you are doing the right thing. Yeah, the, that's a really great point. And it, it, I mean, again, it's it certainly falls in line with what we talked about at the top too, which is that, you know, like you've got to make sure that, you know, the the trifecta of of your disclosures in your brochures and your advisory agreements match what you're what you have for your internal you know compliance policies and procedures and and your internal controls. And if you can marry those three things together in a way that is consistent, it's at least going to uh, hopefully give you a, a foundation for success. Now, again, ultimately, it's still about execution and communication and all the other items that you talked about that would be really helpful for for a firm to make sure that they have in practice. Well, absolutely. And there was there was one other scenario I had mentioned in the beginning I wanted to talk about, because I think when you go back to processes and procedures, you know, we've talked a lot about the SEC, but there's a lot of different um, state regulatory thoughts on this as well. And I worked with an independent RIA one time, not in the so distant past, that actually undercharged a client. And so I think we always think that, that the regulators are looking out for where they believe a client has been harmed. But this particular advisor had changed the way they calculated their billing which caused them to undercharge some clients. 
and they actually were fined for that because it didn't follow what they had in their disclosure brochures and what they had written in their procedures manuals. And so I always like to bring this one up because there's this hidden thought, I think, all the time that if we voter charge clients, that's the only time that you're in trouble or the only time that you're going to you know, receive a deficiency. But it, it, there's many cases out there where they undercharged a client and the SC or the regulator still gave them a deficiency and in some cases a fine because they weren't following their procedures and processes. And so there are many regulators, depending on who you're working with, that are more interested in whether or not you followed a procedure and process than they are whether or not a client might've been overcharged or harmed. That's incredible. There, there's a couple of things that come to mind right off the bat. Number one, I'm like hearkening back to the first year of, of law school in torts and talking about like the fourth element being damages as being something that you need, you need to show to have actual harm uh, uh, proven. But look, that's probably a conversation for a different podcast at a different time. The, the second thing that comes to mind is exactly what, what you mentioned though. And, and certainly I think would be consistent with what I've seen in other exams too, which is that, even when the the harm is either nominal, like you know, we talked about. I've I've been in examinations where it's been the the refund has been you know like under a dollar, you know, eighty three cents. You mentioned you know forty three cents or uh, the, the number you gave earlier, or in like the cases you were just talking about where the client wasn't even actually harmed, right? It was just. The firm didn't have a consistent application of its policies and procedures when it came to fees and billing. And so it certainly uh, would indicate that, you know, for every firm that's out there, it's going to be so important uh, to do, you know, compliance testing in that front. And that's actually probably a good, a good segue. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on testing because I'm sure probably lots of folks listening to this podcast now are, are thinking to themselves, man, I, I really need to do some testing on fees and billing. You know, what what are hallmarks of, of a successful billing program and specifically um, on the compliance testing front? Would you have any kind of best practices in that? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that because as we were talking, I was sort of thinking about these best practices and, you know, we, we've been talking about the consistency and doing what your procedures and policies say. And, you know, all the regulations out there say you need reasonable procedures and policies. Well, in some of my conversations with them, they have challenged whether we had reasonable ones if we had no testing component to it somewhere on the back end. So as a best practices, like I said earlier, I would strongly encourage having some type of testing on the back end. Um, as I mentioned, one of the things that we did at one of my firms is we ended up putting in a compliance sorry, a quarterly testing where we took 25 um, of our accounts. And it was a large firm. And there's there's a lot of different aspects on what's a reasonable testing. Um, I learned a long time ago, whether you like it or not, that if you do 25 to 50 and they're all consistent, um, that that, no matter how big you are, is a pretty good sampling to determine if there's a problem. Now, if you see one problem in those, then you, you do a larger sampling. Some people like percentages. Um, they like 10%, 15% is a lot of what you hear about there. That can sometimes get unwildly as you grow if you don't have the resources to be able to actually do the testing. But whatever it is you decide on, testing is going to be important. 
Um, like I mentioned, we set it up on a quarterly basis to review the calculations to make sure that the calculation for 25 of these accounts happened the way we had it disclosed in our procedures manual and our disclosure brochures and was happening the way we expected it to happen from a technology standpoint. The other thing that was nice about that is when we did that, if there was something we found that was not working the way we intended it for or not the way that we had it disclosed, we could update our disclosures, we could refund clients if needed, we could basically fix the problem and take care of it before any anybody came in, which then also helped us provide our backup documentation that we had reasonable processes and procedures in place. Like, look, we're actually finding things and we're fixing them. And so that gave the understanding to the SEC that we were taking this seriously, we were doing what needed to be done. We weren't doing it when we thought you guys were coming in. We were doing it on a consistent basis to ensure we were catching things at the appropriate times and fixing them going forward. That is that is absolutely uh, fantastic advice, and and I could not agree with that more. I mean, for any of the advisors or other firms that are out there that are doing types of testing like that, and, and especially I feel like this conversation occurs when you are working with the the leadership at those firms, or even sometimes the the folks in charge of the business unit who might have been doing the testing, and and you find an error, and they start to think oh no, like this looks really, really bad and whatever. And, and of course, like, of course, you, you, you know, you want to get in front of it. You want to try to um, uh, uh, do as much as you can to either correct the problem and then prevent it from happening in the future. But it's such a good sign that the compliance program is working, that, that you're doing, uh, it's an effective supervision, right, of the program. Yeah, so. you know what, to spin that to the business unit, it, it's really funny, but there were some times that we did those reviews and we found that there was a fault of some kind. We went back and discussed it with the business units and sometimes it was an opportunity to look at the way we were doing something and should we actually change it? Is now the time to change it? And so doing those reviews, determining if we wanted to change our disclosures or change the way we did business then helped us in some ways stay more relevant because maybe there was a flaw in it because we weren't keeping up to date with what some of the industry changes are. Well, now, since we have to make changes anyway, why not make them to be more in line with where the industry is going? Yeah, that's a great point. So a lot, what was in the, your, your response as well that I want to circle back to, actually, I've got two things to follow up on and then, and then we'll get you out of here with kind of a more fun question. Um, okay. So, so one on the policy front, one of the things that has come up also in, uh, in recent examinations that we've seen, and that I think would be a, a good tip and wanted to know if, if you had also experienced this was that the SEC was looking into how firms actually relate this actually relates to the last, the last topic was going to be documentation and, and record keeping. So I wanted to hear from you some best practices on that front, but this specific policy part of that is how do you, you know, is it important to have an ironclad process when it comes to documenting what is a termination date or other kind of key factors whenever you're then going to figure out, okay, what do I need to refund? What do I need to provide from a fees and, and billing perspective for that terminated account? Is that, is that something that you've come across in, in your time there? And then, and then as a, a follow-up to that, what, what are some other best practices that you would say uh, firms should look at on the documentation front? 
So um, to answer your first question, yes, I think you need to have, um, I like to call them generally specific documentation on what like a termination date is when you're going to refund. Um, the reason being is I've seen some really interesting conversations with regulators these days in exams where if you don't have that being consistently applied, they now are starting to go down the path or rabbit hole of, are you being fair from one client to the next if you're using different termination dates? So are you harming one client over the next because you only charge them 15 days versus 14 days? And I think, I don't know about others. I just like to avoid those conversations when I can. I think it's also hard to set up your processes and look for consistency if you don't determine or you know really decide what the definition of these things are. Yeah. And then on the record keeping front, in addition to the uh, kind of, again, having those policies in place, are, are there other best practices that, that you would uh, say a firm should really consider when, when they're looking to set up a, a, a proper billing process? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, we talked about the testing component of it. And so it's great to have these quarterly determined testings, annual determined testings, whatever it is. But I would also encourage people not to be afraid of doing um, one-off testings or impromptu testings. So if something's brought to your attention and you might you think it might be a larger issue, I wholly suggest that you do a testing then or figure out a testing procedure to conduct as a one-off impromptu and document that for your files. Because I think the regulators and the conversations I've had with them they really like to see that too. Not that you're so regimented, which is kind of an oxymoron because we just talked about how you needed to be consistent, but that you're evaluating things as things come up and you know there is a problem. You know, a lot of the times this is not related to fees, but from a testing standpoint, I did a good stint of my time in Wyoming. And so inevitably, once or twice a year, we would have some big snowstorm that come through and people couldn't get to the office. We absolutely use that as our continuity testing. So how did things work? What did we need to adjust for the next time? We didn't plan to do it then. We had our annual testing set at a specific time every year. So I think you can apply that to a lot of different things, including fees. You know, Does somebody bring to your attention that there was a processing error or bring to your attention that there was um, you know, a rule that didn't trigger in the billing system? That's a perfect time to look at those things create that as a testing mechanism and document it as an impromptu, impromptu testing. Such good advice. Uh, it reminds me of, of a, a quote, uh, I believe it's attributed to Winston Churchill during World War II, which is never let a good crisis go to waste, <laughs> right? Like you've got, <laughs> you've got these things that are already happening. Let's absolutely take the the in the the incident the occurrence of of that thing and leverage it knowing that we're going to have to probably execute on some of our other policies and procedures fees expenses billing would be um certainly uh no uh you know anomaly to 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 the, to be able to to do that well melissa this has been absolutely enlightening and and thank you so much. I, I can definitely tell that you have a lot of experience in the space uh, uh, that many of our members are, are going to benefit from. And so really appreciate 
you uh, you know coming on to, to to share that. But but let's get you out of here with something more more, more fun a little bit, uh, so we can get to know Melissa a, a a little better. What is either the best movie or TV show that you've been watching, say, in the last you know three months? Oh gosh. Okay. So, um, for those of you who don't know, I have had foot surgery. So I have been seeing a lot of Netflix. <laughs> um, I would have to say probably my favorite Outer Banks. For oh, people. sure. I loved Outer Banks. So I am waiting for that. And I was able to, you know, get all caught up and watch all seasons and I'm ready for that next one. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, one, uh, uh, continued, um, good luck in, 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 in a speedy recovery again. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Really, uh, appreciate all of the, of the thoughtful insights on the, the difficult topic of fees and expenses and, um, continued good luck in the future and look forward to having you back on, on the podcast sometime down the road. Thanks Patrick. The final part of today's show features another installment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former Grouch-in-Chief and 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney, and will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a compliance issue affecting the investment management industry and securities compliance brothers and sisters. In today's What's On My Mind, we go all the way back to the introductory episode of Compliance and Context. In that opening episode, we stated, did you ever want to know how a key element of acoustic design could be a critical component of your defense during an SEC examination? Well, today's the day we finally get to collect on that teaser. And let's start by taking a look at the Epic of Gilgamesh a poem from ancient Mesopotamia and among the earliest known literary writings in the world. It originated as a series of Sumerian legends and poems in cuneiform script dating back to the early 3rd or late 2nd millennium BCE. At one point in the story, the gods get so infuriated by the noise caused by their human neighbors that they decide to send a flood to wipe them all out. This concept of noise as unwanted sound is not just an ancient, an ancient Sumerian thing, however. As articulated by acoustic designer Dennis Paoletti on the 99% Invisible podcast, you used to have this concept of environmental noise and the notion being that it was always considered a, a distraction. In recent years, however, people have started to look at a city's environment as something unique to that city. This concept gets flushed out further by podcaster Roman Mars, who states on the 99% Invisible podcast that sometimes the job of acoustic design is not just to make things quieter. Sometimes the best way to design a space to have less noise is to add more sound. Take a library, for example. Sometimes when you're in a library, it can feel far too quiet. Like flipping a page in a book can distract everybody around you. The problem acoustically is the background noise level. It's literally too quiet. In those kinds of situations, it can be a huge benefit and many acoustic designers are often requested to come into a situation like that and add some background noise. It's for this same reason that many small parks and cities have fountains. And if they don't have one, you might notice the deafening silence. Seriously, think about it. The next time you're walking around a local city park, check out how many of them have fountains built in there. 
As Paoletti describes, fountains give you this comfort level of acoustical privacy masking unwanted noise. And so finally, the moment you've all been waiting for, how can this idea of acoustical privacy and bringing in sound, not noise, be a critical component of your defense during an SEC exam? Well, as was alluded to during the interview session of the podcast from Melissa Lohner, sometimes uncovering a compliance issue at your firm or identifying an area of need in your compliance program isn't always a bad thing. It actually demonstrates that the compliance program is working is working effectively. And during the course of an SEC examination can provide your firm with some acoustical privacy to other parts of your business that are difficult to understand, difficult to explain, etc., etc. Essentially, sometimes the best way to have less unwanted noise, i.e. the SEC digging into all different parts of your business, is designing a space to have more sound, i.e. showing the staff that the firm may have uncovered a couple of compliance issues, but when it did, they were mitigated or addressed appropriately and the proper enhancements or changes were made. Just like the unwanted noise of turning a page in the library is so noticeable, a compliance program that has had no issues over the course of several years would certainly raise a few eyebrows at the SEC. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Melissa Lohner, for sharing with us some fantastic best practices when it comes to setting up the billing practices inside our firms. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 